I'm Andrew Faust. This is Permaculture Perspectives. And today you're going to be listening to the first installment in a mini-series that we're doing that we're specifically kicking off the Permaculture Living Lands Trust work with a series of interviews with people who we know in the field and people who we've been informed we should talk to who are doing important work. And so keep your ears peeled for the upcoming series. These are PLLT listening sessions, number one. They are all standalone sessions. And as you listen to them cumulatively, you will find a sum result that is greater than the parts, I am quite certain. So thanks for listening. Stay in touch and let us know other topics that you'd like to hear a series on or put me in touch with people who you'd like to hear me interview on this program. Permaculture Living Lands Trust Listening Sessions Number One This is my conversation with Michael Judd, a good friend and colleague who I first met in New York City over 12 years ago. And Michael and I have been pursuing the permaculture vision through the pathway of city communities and city classes. And Michael has now started a project that you'll hear me interviewing him about here that is called Silvo Culture or Silvo Culture, depending on your Latin background. And Michael and I have some fun also exploring his journey in the path of permaculture and his arrival at this focus that he shares with our project of the Permaculture Living Lands Trust and with many in the broader permaculture community, and that is the focus on tree crops and on nut trees and on creating landscapes that continue to provide for many generations to come as our legacy that we want to leave. So here I am talking with Michael Judd, Permaculture Living Land Trust listening series. I'm happy to always be to conversation with you. It's been uh, it's been some years and I was just reading over. I'd heard a little bit about your work with the Land Trust and it's it just reflecting how our our journey, you know, in many ways continues to mirror uh, yeah. one another, our sort of our, our evolution of of what we're doing with our lives and the value of what we, you know, who we are and what we can do. And, you know, I've started a nonprofit, Silvo Culture, focused on agroforestry, nut-rich systems. You know, we're looking to partner with land trusts. And, you know, so we're, you know, we're, we're paralleling. And I'm, so I'm really interested to learn more about uh, what you're doing. And maybe, maybe that's part of what you want to cover here. What, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I was thinking. I wanted to talk about your Silvo Culture project because that was new to me that you were working on that. And yet I looked at your site and saw that you'd been at it since, you know, as an organization, 2019, it looks like, is when you guys mm-hmm. you started Silvo Culture. Yep. Yep. About four yep. years. Yep. Permaculture Perspectives. Excited this afternoon to have Michael Judd here, good friend and colleague, somebody who we were just discussing, we've been on parallel paths for some time. And yeah, Michael, I appreciate you taking the time. Your projects have always been an inspiration to me. I remember coming into New York City and learning about early on what you were doing with 
Project Bonafidei and your work down in uh, Nicaragua with that project, right? Was that where one of the campuses was? We were, you were located in, uh, in a very unique site, very remote site there, from what I understand. I yeah. Pleasure yeah, going uh, that, yeah, the south, um, southwest corner of Nicaragua is a huge lake, one of the biggest in the world, freshwater lakes. Wow. In that lake is a huge twin volcanic island called Isla Ometepe. And it's the largest island in a freshwater lake in the world. Um, and it's a, like a like a place out of time. You know, it's like going back hundreds of years to live there. Mm-hmm. And so people are living there are literally, you know, surviving on what they can grow. So great learning ground, a great testing ground for a lot of these concepts, permaculture, you know, agroforestry, you know, what really works because there, <laughs> if it wasn't working, you weren't eating, uh, you know, there was no buffer. So, yeah, yeah. so it was interesting. Yeah. I was bouncing between that rural island and New York City, you know, yeah. for a couple yeah. of years there. Yeah. And the juxtaposition was was fascinating. I was fundraising, you know, so I was going up there to fundraise. But I was also... I was also trying to get back in touch with, with the modern world. You know, I lived in that, on that island for 12 years. And so it was, it was, good, to, it was good to come back also to reality. But yeah. yes, I remember meeting you there in a pub and starting our friendship. Yeah. Yeah, well, t- tell me a little more about your, whatever you'd like to share about, you know, your permaculture journey, as we call it. Because I, I really don't know if you and I have you know, had a chance to kind of share notes about those kinds of things. I think we we probably have a sense of it from each other's professional material that's out there, but I'd love to hear anything you'd like to share about that. The, the what what took you to there, 12 years there, what where, where yeah, where wherever you'd like to go, but I'd love to hear some more about your, your background, your permaculture yeah. journey, so to speak, and how brought you to to silviculture to kind of fast forward us and then let's let's talk shop bring, about bring it all the way. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. It's all, it's all tied together. Um, it started when I was 20. I went and lived in uh, central Argentina. And it's kind of the first time I'd ever been in a quote unquote, uh, you know, third world. And the experience of seeing cities of hovels, um, you know, children playing, playing in sewage, it, it, it it, it ripped my part, my life apart in so many ways uh, to realize that this was going on, whereas I'd grown up like in a suburbia here in the mid-Atlantic uh, and never really been totally exposed to such widespread, you know, poverty and conditions. So it was a real life changer when I experienced that and saw that and it, and it, and it uh, gave my life uh, direction. And at that point, I was 20. I didn't really have any skills built up. And I was trying to figure out why well, I want to be helpful. And I realized that I was going to have to start learning skills to be of service. Uh, so I started the journey there of, of starting to, you know, learn how to grow food, um, traveling throughout Latin America, you know, working different harvests, different coffee harvests, uh, living rural, uh, rural communities. And during picking uh, the coffee harvest one year in Central America, I was doing it with, a, with an extensive family of Nicaraguans. You, know, you had grandmother all the way down to like, you know, the nine-year-old granddaughter, the whole family, uh, you know, picking coffee. And I just, I was just so impressed and really fell in love with their sense of family, community, and decided I need to go check out Nicaragua. 
and this was way back well in 96 um so you know what is that yeah i don't know 25 plus years ago yeah and there was no gringo trail back then like <laughs> there is now which was cool uh you know we had hitchhiked there was there was really no hotels or anywhere to stay uh in nicaragua so we'd stay with families and as i was crossing the border coming up through costa rica into you know uh, southwest nicaragua when you're going up the coastal highway there you see isla ometepe you see this beautiful twin volcanic island rising out of this immense water and it is it, it, it it's life-changing it certainly was for me and even though i actually didn't go to ometepe on that trip the vision of that place called me back um and when i built up skills you know i guess i was 27 when um i decided to return to nicaragua with the intent of starting a you know a nonprofit and working on long-term food security. And so my, my, you know, what I'd learned through many awesome experiences, some living with some of the last of the Lacanon Mayans uh, in what's called modern day Chiapas. You know, I lived in the heart of the jungle um, in one of the last communities that had not been, you know, Christianized or modernized at all. And that changed my life and the way that I got to see how humans as a species can live on the same sort of land, you know, generation after generation, and it'd be regenerative and keep providing all they needed, you know, all their foods and fibers their fodders, their medicines, you know, their, it kept their entire culture intact. They weren't, they weren't destroying it and having to keep moving. They were able to live in the same spot. I remember when I first arrived in the jungle there, when I, I was looking around and it just looked like wild, thick jungle, like I couldn't distinguish uh, that, that uh, you know, any management practices were going on at all. But as I lived there and I started interacting in day-to-day -day life, I was watching how they were, you know, managing and working with this perennial, uh, basically food forest, you know, for their foods, you know, for creating their arts and crafts and their medicines and their ceremony and everything, you know, linked. And they had these long-term uh, fallow uh, slash and burns like seven year cycles, not like the, the fast slash and burn that's going on throughout most of the world for annual agriculture, which is done on a, a yearly basis. So very different. The indigenous way of, of fallowing land was was more, you know, at least seven year cycles, allowing, you know, good root, you know, sort of perennial root growth to hold that soil. And, mm -hmm. and so when you did kind of clear it, it wasn't completely cleared. So big difference. Maybe I'll get to that um, comparison again um, yep. with the slash and burn. So that changed my life. I also got very sick living in the jungle. You know, it's just a different environment. When you're in the tropics, man, when you're in the jungle, uh, you go down on the food chain. You know, you basically start to be eaten from the inside out. And I didn't grow up in those environments. So it definitely... Um, I got very sick and I pretty much dragged myself out of the jungle, but that was also the beginning of, of, of a whole nother aspect of my journey because I started going through the medical system, you know, they give you pink, you know, purple pills you know, do this, they, that, you know, they're guessing, they don't know they're making you sicker. And I was like, all right, this is not working. So what do I do? Yeah. And about that time, so I'd come back to the States, I had, um, I was into natural building because when I was in the jungle, I was starting to learn how to build with Adobe, um, you know, thatch, 
you know, sort of round wood pole building, you know, basically what we had around us in the jungle. One of the things I did there was build this beautiful compost toilet. And that was, that was fashioned literally out of the jungle. So I was like, okay, well, that's something I really want to continue doing. I hadn't heard about permaculture at this point at all, or really had any community in North America related to what I'd been experiencing um, throughout Latin America. Anyway, I went to this, uh, I went to this intentional communities gathering at Twin Oaks in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And there was, there was a, a slideshow about Earth Haven, you know, the first permaculturally designed community right. in North America that was yep. going on in at near Asheville down in the Smoky Mountains. And I was like, wow, look at that. They were building a 13-sided Mayan design, straw bale, um, you know, living roof, brown wood, timber framed council house. And I was like, I want to work on that. I, that. That's what I'm looking for. So I went straight down there. Arrived on a Saturday, they were had a big community work day going on, jumped right in building straw bales. And even though I didn't know anything about permaculture, I had landed right in the right in the midst of the genesis of one of the most dynamic permaculture sites on the planet. It was probably about four or five years into its beginning. Mm -hmm. And it's like Peter Bain was there, yeah. uh, Chuck Marsh, uh, Patricia Allison. Uh, just, you know, good heart. I mean, it was just a phenomenal uh, um, gathering of permaculture teachers and leaders. Those are all my uh, there. That's who I studied with at the farm before they started. Right. They... right. Yep. Right. So, yeah, there was, it was, a, I guess it was kind of born, born from the farm, right? Yep. Well, they just hosted those cats for a while before they were able to launch Earth Haven. So it was, it was where they did their PDCs. It was where Patricia Allison, Andrew Goodhart, Chuck Marsh, and Peter Bain were all teaching design certification courses at the Eco Village Training Center that Albert Bates started at the farm. And then they 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 got then they found the property and they started Earth Haven. Yeah, uh, we do have we do have old roots, Andrew. We do. Look there. Yeah, um, exactly. That that's really wild. That's the farm, the farm, yeah, the farm farms that's that's about as old as our permaculture roots go, don't they? Um, mm -hmm. so so yeah, so that was my introduction to permaculture. That's I mean, around me, around me, it was like coming to life, you know, they were tapping the stream for microhydro, they were creating a forest co-op, you know, a mark, a you know, market garden group, you know, they were creating their own economies. Um, it was just like, wow. And the community was great. You know, this, the, it, finally I felt like, wow, I'd, I'd found, you know, a community that I really, you know, jived with and related to, uh, within North America. So it was all, it was all very exciting to me. Um, very powerful. Again, kept having all these powerful experiences. Uh, at the, I guess I still am, but as a, as a young person, it was a lot. Um, so all of that was um, in my journey to heal and realizing also that the healing for my body was coming from the plants, you know, coming from the earth and growing the food. So that was kind of my, you know, it really deepened my, my understanding of, of growing. And so all this put together, you know, you know, brought me back to coming back to Latin America. And I was, I wanted to go to Ometepe. It was calling me like in my dreams. Um, so I went back there at age 27, started a nonprofit, raised some money, went down there. Actually, interestingly enough, right before I started it, I went down to Punta Mona. So another permaculture 
uh, thread here. Stephen Brooks's place, uh, Putamona down there in the Caribbean, the very south would be that would be the southeast corner of Costa Rica, very south around the Panama border is Punta Punta Mona. And Stephen was just a number of years into starting that as well. And he he invited me to come, which was I thought was really amazing. He didn't know who I was, um, but it shows a lot about his character, um, gregarious and open. And so he invited me to come actually during one of their permaculture design courses, even though I wasn't, you know, taking the course that was being taught by Doug Bullock mm. um, and a few mm. other, you know, uh, permaculture, you know, ninjas. Um, mm. I'm trying to think of who else. So I think John Valenzuela, uh, Valenzuela was there mm -hmm. um, and a few others. But Doug, Doug Bullock uh, has been one of one of my one of my biggest mentors, um, one of, in so many ways, and not even just from like, oh, details of how to do stuff, but like how he lives his life, how he sees things. Um, so very holistic. And so he was key. That experience was key in the sense that I went down there. And then I, when I left there, I went to Nicaragua and I started Project Bonafide uh, mm -hmm. on Isla Ometepe. And, you know, I found a, a, a a property that wasn't being used locally. It was uh, being um, monocultured, uh, cash cropped by an absentee landlord that was doing plantains, you know, bananas on it, right? Mm -hmm. So using mm -hmm. the soil up, spraying it, not loving it, not caring for it. So I was like, okay, I, you know, I feel like this is, and there's a lot of other powerful signs and, and very complicated things happen very easily for me to, um, you know, become a steward of 26 acres on the side of this volcano. And it was amazing, great soil, um, you know, pretty decent water wow. um, and things just exploding. Beautiful rural communities that were very uh, accepting of me, um, really brought me in because I was totally alone. I showed up with a machete and nothing else, you know, sort of an idea, you know, a little bit of money in my pocket and started from scratch and worked really hard. And I think the locals really appreciated that. And they saw I was living rough. I was living rougher than a lot of them, which is saying something and working really hard every day. So they really kind of got involved. And, and, and my whole intention with starting Project Bonafide was to create, help create, um, co-create, you know, long-term food security through what I've mm -hmm. been learning about perennial food systems versus annual food systems. So the pattern that you see in a lot of places in the world, and certainly there in Nicaragua, is is cash cropping. So basically, over over the decades, um, you know, IMF, World Bank, these international monetary funds have created dictates on countries for debt relief. Basically, that says you now have to change your land use to growing, you know, cash crops to pay off your debt: rice, beans, corn. And that, within just a couple of generations, changed what was more of a mixed annual perennial polyculture mix, where the cultures were still able to get their medicines from, you know, from from perennial, you know, forest systems, be able to do some hunting, uh, to really almost that all being clear cut and burned uh, for rice, beans, and corn, you know, dry land rice. And then, yeah. of course, when the rains come, all that soil is gone and. So very quickly, it was, it was really kind of, it's, it's amazing how fast things have changed in the world. And you see it when you get out into these cultures um, and realize the tail end of what's, what's, what's been lost. Mm -hmm. um, and now the conditions that they're in, which don't serve them at all. The cash cropping does not serve uh, them in any which way at all.
right uh, it does quite the opposite so right. yeah 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 that 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 uh, so, export export economy just guts local cultures yeah it it's it's kind of the macro structure that's dictating the land use and and that trickles down and basically yeah even though it's a failed system and i think it probably failed even for debt relief they yeah. put so much energy into a campaign that you know would go through all these countries they had a huge campaign to switch the farmers, you know, to growing and giving seeds and like, you know, really sort of sold them on it so that that then became the norm. And no one ever came back to say, OK, hey, this actually isn't working. Let's. <laughs> so anyway, someone like me shows up yeah. and, and actually in Nicaragua, there's there, there's been a, a strong history since the 70s, since the Sandinistas uh, were able to throw out, you know, sort of the U.S. backed dictator down there. Um, you know, a lot of individuals and nonprofits and religious groups and everyone piled into, into Nicaragua uh, to help with a lot of projects. So the Nicaraguan people have been able to see over time that there's quite a difference between, say, the U.S. government and its people, you know, because we're not obviously mm-hmm. all the same or, or, you know, agreeing to what, you know, the government's doing. So right. I was well received. And at first, when I remember when I first went to Nicaragua, like in 1996, I was like looking over my shoulder because I'd been reading the history. I, you know, I, I was aware largely of what had been going down. So I was like, man, these people are going to be really, you know, really naturally upset. And but they weren't. Yeah. And that's part of it's part of part of what I love, really love about the especially the Nicaraguan uh, community is their is their open heartedness um, and understanding. And anyway, so I was, I really fell in love. I fell in love with the land. I fell in love with the people. And, and of course, you know, the, the need was so strong there. So anyway, so I show up and I'm realizing, you know, people are literally surviving on what they can grow rice, beans, and corn based on, you know, the weather that year, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, me getting up on a soapbox and talking about all the benefits of, of having, you know, perennials, you know, in your systems was really not really going to go anywhere because you were asking people to change the right. only thing that they were totally relying on. They had no margin, no margin for error. So I was like, okay, well then, you know, let me see how I can slowly sort of graft into what they're doing and start working with the concepts of, okay, around your field of rice and beans, you know, along that fence line, you know, let's plant some grafted avocados that will start produce at different times of years let's get different types of you know mangoes and that'll produce at different times of years so we went around about after a couple years after i started chris shanks came on chris shanks another amazing permaculture uh guy you know from from north america uh came down and really helped me at a point when i was like man i was i was starting to burn out um and brought in a lot of energy and he would go around the tropical belt and, and say, same with Doug Bullock and all these other permaculture, you know, traveling ninjas would would gather genetic diversity of, say, different types of jackfruit, mangoes, avocados from southern Florida, Hawaii, Southeast Asia, you know, sort of these these uh, analog climates and yeah. brought it back to Bonafide. Yeah. And our nursery was pumping. And so, I mean, now. That property is, you know, it's 20, that was 21, that was 22 years ago. It is an absolute cornucopia of genetic diversity, palms, bamboos, you know, all your fruits, nuts, medicinals. I mean, it's insane. 
Mm-hmm. And really, that's probably one of the highest values it will ever have is, is as a genetic repository for that region now. You know, as people become aware and interested, they can go there and they can propagate from that space. And so, I mean, a lot of other projects yeah. work, some yeah. didn't work. Um, we had a lot, you know, learned a lot. Uh, we had a lot of per- international permaculture design courses there, bilingual permaculture courses. You know, there was quite a local international interaction. A lot of marriages have happened, which is cool. You uh-huh. know, a lot of yeah. a lot of Nicaraguans have married. You know, a lot of just because I showed up there, and I think of that as one of the most amazing things that has followed in, mm-hmm. in, um, in me ever showing up there. It's ongoing. Yeah, um, yeah that's. Yeah. Totally. So, so yeah, I, I mean, anyway, so from there, um, you know, so aside from food security. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about that project. That's awesome. And I really, and I really, you know, always have had a lot of just to underscore some of your name references there. I mean, Doug Bullock, I've never met him, but always had great admiration for his work. And of course, Chris Shanks, I know from the Vermont classes and yeah, just wanted to, underscore what a fireball that cat is <laughs> bring so much energy to it good way, good way to put it good way to put it um and uh yeah let me, just, uh, let me just let, let me just finish one little thing there i know i've been yeah, please yeah no no i just wanted to share some uh feedback there about some of those epic you know figures that you're mentioning that some of our listeners and other folks might not know because you have to kind of be really into permaculture to get a sense of who some of the icons are through time in it. So thank you. Right, they're kind of they're they're, they're kind of the elders. They're they're, they're yeah. the elders at this stage. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of them were the ones who began, um, you know, north you know permaculture in North America. Totally. And and also, um, Crimpy um, out there in yeah. Colorado. Um, yeah. Blank, blanking for a Jerome, second on his name. Jerome Austin. Jerome. Jerome. Yeah. <laughs> Jerome, yeah. man, you talk about an elder. Everyone's like 83, 84, 84 yeah. 85 and now. Talking about in the Rockies. in the country. Yeah. yeah. You, you talk about fireball. There's a fireball. He's still going. He's come, he's come, he's, uh, he's come to our pawpaw fest uh, here in Maryland the last couple of years. Uh, we've been out to visit him the last couple of years. Uh, um, he tied me into a permaculture design course in Puerto Rico this time a year ago. I mean, he's just, oh, cool. he's just blazing. He's looking to start, you know what, he's looking uh, to start uh, sort of a nationwide agroforestry education project. So huh? I haven't touched base with him recently. Yeah. Um, he's on fire to create networks. And so there might be something that ties in with with your Definitely. land trust as well. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. For and that. nurseries. You know, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think we're all noticing, you know, the importance of, of nurseries being built to meet the, you know, the movement, but I'm, I'm getting a hit yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I wanted to just to follow up on that, on the design, you know, in Nicaragua. So number yeah. one, those foods would create food security, you know, when annual crops fail because they're based on the weather. A lot of times the bean crop would fail, the rice would fail, and people would literally not have anything backed up. Uh, so getting those perennials on the borders would create food security, number one, but then secondly, they would create market niches. So they'd create niche market opportunities to be able to sell, you know, you know avocados in a, in a month when the, you know, sort of the wild ones aren't producing. 
mm-hmm. um, would create an income that that you know could help stimulate you know the more planting of those and over time you know sort of create you know re-parentalize you know the landscape there and create a stronger economy and food security at the same time yeah and that's worked yeah. in different degrees down there um but anyway so that ties back in now coming back to north america i've been back in north america now about 10 or 12 years um mm-hmm. I'm, I'm from maryland originally and you know my parents uh my mom's 83 my dad uh died about seven years ago uh at 73 so i was like all right i you know i'm ready to come back to be you know with my family and yeah. maryland's a sweet spot i mean like climate wise i mean this is maryland um northern virginia parts of the panhandle of west virginia southern pennsylvania is one of the best growing climates i've ever come across on the entire planet Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I was like, yes, okay. All these factors are really drawing me back here. And of course the same yeah. issues and not same issues, but the same patterns of food security and land use are happening here as well. Yeah. So I've come back and I, but I've had to translate, which is what permaculture is great at doing because it's patterns just yeah. translate it through the cultural lens of, of modern, you know, mid Atlantic suburbia how do we sort of start, you know, grafting in, um, you know, perennial, you know, food security and economy here. And anyway, that's, yes. that, that catches me up pretty much where I'm at now. Yeah. And what, what are some of those patterns that you've observed that you would want to, you know, articulate or share to give a sense of what you're both, what you've observed about, what's happening and then also to borrow your term there which i really i like the grafting um overlays of meaning there where you know where to graft in what have you observed as like the patterns of mid-atlantic landscape and then where where are you seeing opportunities to graft in the perennial um production to 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 offset or supplement the uh over dependence on annuals and imported foods Right. So what I realized, you know, mostly in Nicaragua with with really wanting to be helpful, really wanting to be of service. And, and at first, you know, I, I came in with all these ideas from fundraising. Right. You know, this, this our culture sort of pressures us even with fundraising and, you know, nonprofits. It's like, oh, what's your five and 10 year plan? You know, here's some money, you know, and it's like you get there and it's not like that. And those things may not work. So I started to realize out of just really wanting to be, you know, of service that I had to really look through the cultural lens, you know, I'd look through their eyes and their lives and what were they, what would they do? What would be the first small step they would take if you gave them resources? And when I started coming from that space, uh, everything started to work, you know, I started to have success. And that meant I had to come back, you know, maybe 20 spots, you know, 20 spaces from where I wanted to start, but it taught me an important, you know, understanding of how to work with people where they're at um if, if, if you really want to be helpful and you really want to work with them mm-hmm. and so yeah. come bring that understanding to you know suburbia modern mid-atlantic how do i work with where people are at here and part of that is aesthetics right you know suburbia you know is is based on you know aesthetics caring about what your neighbor thinks etc cetera, etc cetera. And suburbia in our region has the most land use, you know, the most resource use, you know, they're really 
to me, the target for beginning to change the landscape. Um, so I was thinking about all these things and I was like, okay, I need to kind of make this sexy. I need to make this attractive. I need to make permaculture graft into, you know, where they would really be interested in, in interacting with it. And so that's where I started. I started a edible ecological landscape company called Ecologia and I hit the ground running and, uh, you know, I had relationships and, you know, things to start with, you know, uh, top chef, Brian Voltaggio is a friend of mine. Um, so I was able to start doing, you know, sort of this edible landscaping at his restaurant <laughs> on cool. and other things. So I, but, so I had great starting grounds. Yeah. It was really, it really, it really all swept for me and the timing was right. <clears throat> you know, if I'd come back five years earlier, it wouldn't have been there literally this is 10, 12 years ago, you know, mm -hmm. where this sort of investment into, you know, edible landscaping and permaculture has really started to rise. You know, you know that too, from yep. trying to, you know, do work previously, it wasn't really the, you know, people weren't really hiring so much. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I, I hit the stride and, you know, I started, you know, I started doing herb spirals, you know, really beautiful looking swales you know, rain gardens, um, you know, making culture beds, you know, really, you know, fit into the landscape, you know, so taking all of these very important concepts, food forests, you know, how to do food forests and how to, you know, make them attractive and just really kind of, you know, trying to view it through, you know, almost that magazine lens mm -hmm. uh, that people mm -hmm. tend to, to look through. Yeah. And, um, and I recorded and I recorded it, you know, with an iPhone, an early iPhone, and that's how I wrote my first book, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, is literally just the first three years of my edible landscape business mm -hmm. and workshops, you know, so I started doing workshops. I was like, all right, you know, people want to learn stuff. I'm going to do hands-ons, you know, I really want people to do the stuff. I wanted to learn. I'm not, I haven't, I'm not just trying to, you know, try to build up, you know, a reputation or anything. I'm like, I really want to see these landscapes change. I really want to see this happen. Right. So right. how's that going to happen? Yeah. Is what keep coming back to yeah keep trying to put the ego in the back pocket and be like all right come on come on and right. even though we're in anyway so economy that doesn't encourage that very much <laughs> no but that maybe that's where the creativity comes in too yeah. you know and it's like okay well maybe maybe i leverage my ego um you know to to get people's attention which is kind of what i'm doing now too yeah you know i'm like all right well you know you know, let, 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 let me do a little song and dance and, you know, make things attractive so that people come. It's like our pawpaw fest. You know, we have a festival. People mm -hmm. come for the pawpaw, but then they get introduced to, you know, the whole permaculture life that we live, food forest tours, you know, plant walks, check out our circular straw bale house. You know, there's just tons of learning that, that it blows them away. They didn't yeah. know that all that was going to happen. So, you know, I'm, I'm obviously, you know, willing to work with a little bit of that uh, fanfare ego to get people. But, uh, you know, I'm pointing it. I'm directing it to, you know, yeah. ideally people planting. Um, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and now it's got now it's, you know, I've I've gotten to the evolution that it's nut trees, planting nut trees, because what really lasts, especially in our climate <laughs> in regions and things, a it's lot of it temperate world are yep. the nuts yep and yeah i'm laughing because i've arrived at the same place <laughs> i mean yeah, I it's, yeah right it's like it's it's a kind of it's it has truth to it you can tell because it's so obvious that you would think how can something that simple actually be that substantial 
right? It's like elusively simple. Right. It's, it, it's like, like, oh, is it really about like, nut trees? Yeah, it kind of is about nut trees, especially in the Northeast temperate climate, right? In these cold climates, the nuts uh, are, are where it's at. Yeah. For perennials. Yeah, the mid-Atlantic, southeast, you yeah. know, I think I think to some degree, you know, across the entire continent, you know, it might be mesquite sure. somewhere else, but sure. yep. <laughs> it's that similar yep. concept of a, yep. of a, of a perennial uh, food source that has your proteins, your minerals, your fats. I mean, it's literally what, yep. if you look back in history, it's what indigenous peoples were able to sort of survive on and live in this, especially in the colder climates, you know, year round. And not just eating the nuts, but the, all the, you know, the whole ecosystem that they fed, you know, all the hunting and everything. The, like, they're, they're the keystone to basically yeah. surviving, you know, in our climate without a grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think once you fully realize that, you're like, oh, <clears throat> I mean, fruit trees, <clears throat> excuse me, fruit trees and all the, you know, your garden vegetables and all that stuff, yeah. um, you know, have their place. But to a large degree, I think of them kind of like salsa you know, next to the meat, which is your nuts and what's really going to, you know, get you through the winter and feed your animals through the winter largely um, with little input, you know, there's that that energy in for energy out aspect as well, which comes into play. I think we're going to come into play again as, you know, as, as oil, you know, becomes more expensive, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to, we're going to pay more attention to energy in for energy out. And when you look at perennial systems and nut trees, uh, you're like, wow, there's so little input and then there's just this ton of return. Um, so, so anyway, I jumped ahead a little bit there, but um, I'm always, I'm always excited about talking about nut trees. Yeah. No. So um, I wanted to ask you to segue into some specific questions if you're, you know, about silviculture, but if you had another um, topic or theme there, you wanted to wrap up, please feel free. I wasn't, I didn't mean to, you know, hijack it. Well, no, that's good. No, I, I, I probably hijacked myself. Um, just to follow up a little bit to bring the history right up to yeah. silviculture and, and nuts. Um, so started Ecologia um, and, I, and I, I started building our circular straw bale house, uh, which was a phenomenal uh, undertaking. Little did I know as usual that it would be, but uh, built this round wood timber framed uh, circular straw bale house, uh, basically from all the wood uh, on our, you know, where we were living, most of it storm fallen during Hurricane Sandy. Mm-hmm. And the house is designed after the council house at Earth Haven that I went and learned and helped build, oh, you know, cool. 25, 30 years ago. Right. So it, it definitely That's stuck with me, that experience. Yeah. Uh, and our house is patterned after that, you know, modified a bit, uh, but basically the same concept. Um, so, and, and fell in love. Imagine that had to come all the way back and fell in love with a, with a, with a beautiful goddess that's uh, from, you know, Maryland. Grew up on a farm uh, so she could, she could handle someone like me um, <laughs> and started a whole new chapter of life. Yeah, started yeah. a whole new chapter of life. Um, got, you know, got married, had our, had our first son who's nine now, Wyatt Wizard Judd. He was born as we were building the house. Uh, so he was literally born into, you know, piles of sand and clay and straw bales. And so it was, it was, it was a very intense time of life. You know, it's like, I was like relaunching all over again. I was 40, I was 40. 
Yeah. And I was like, here I go again, whole new thing, building a house, getting married, starting a business, trying to make money. Um, and then, and then my father died, you know, during this whole process as well. Yeah. So wow. that's another huge key piece of my journey in, in sitting with his passing in death. And we created our own home cemetery uh, in the process of his passing. We did it together. And, you know, pretty much just, you know, from, from, I don't know, just from reading and hearing, we decided that we were going to hold space uh, as he passed and keep him at home and bury him ourselves. Um, so when he passed, we, we kept him at home for three days, got dry ice, you know, set up a, you know, sort of a sacred space in our home, sat with him, had a wake, you know, gathered as a family dug the grave and buried them ourselves um, with nobody else involved and hugely powerful experience uh, that has brought so much full circle for me in in all of it um, and again another huge piece and shift and changing in my life uh, which I think also is you know related to permaculture you know I don't think it's talked about enough in permaculture mm -hmm. oddly enough that you know that end of life sometimes gets dropped uh, like it does in many, many cultural circles, but yes. the importance and the value of, of holding space for each other as we come in. Cause we had our, we had Wyatt at home as well. We had home births uh, for yeah. both of our children. Um, and, and now we're, and now we're burying each other as well. And so both those experiences have really impacted my life and understanding and, um, I've spent, you know, the last seven or eight years doing a lot of talks and work around natural burial, um, you know, home uh, sort of funeral care. And I've got some good videos if, uh, if anyone's interested um, oh, that's, on yeah, my that's, site, Ecologia Design. Yeah. I'll put that also. I've got some the links there. And what I'm great. Yeah. And I've got some podcasts and stuff where I talk more in depth about that. Um, and, and maybe I'll come back to that in a minute because I tie that together with nut trees as well. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, fast forward a number of years, um, we started a, um, my battery's getting low, but I got 10%. So fast forward a few years, uh, pawpaws. So it's like in Nicaragua where I noticed that mangoes just did really well wild. So it was easy to go with mangoes. So here I am, like pawpaws are all around, it's doing really well, you know, but if I touch that system, if I touch that energy flow just a little bit, I get a huge return, right? So in permaculture, that's what we talk about. We look for these energy flow systems and that we can, you know, put our touch into that creates a dynamic, you know, sort of um, response. And so pawpaws, they're doing well here. They're wild and mostly in the woods. So it's like, okay, let's bring those out in full sun. Let's, let's, let's carve swales. You know, let's let's create, you know, these juicy food forests, fuel culture patches, you know, this 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 rich, moist, uh, humus rich environment that they love, but in full sun. And then they start producing, you know, 35, 50 pounds uh, of delicious, you know, one pound size fruits <clears throat> that sell for, you know, 10, 15 dollars a pound. I'm like, OK, well, that's an easy one. Let's work with that. And started really working with Paul Paul, started a Paul Paul Festival uh, again, so another thing I learned living in Latin America and, and throughout this whole permaculture journey is looking for the crossroads of ecology, uh, economy, and culture. 
and where can those three graph together? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think all three need to be realistically really yeah. working well together. And yeah. so this, this Paul Paul festival has been a great example of that. So it's like, you know, it, it's a cultural, it, it builds culture, which is not easy, but really important to do. Um, it, it's based around ecology and learning. And then it's also creates economy, you know, that, that, you know, we, we, we do pretty well creating a, a small festival. And so do other people doing festivals. It's another way to create income for your, you know, perennial permaculture, you know, doings, you know, Mm -hmm. as does natural burial, you know. So there's all these sort of these creative, you know, ways to work with permaculture and ecology and economy and culture Mm -hmm. um, that can actually be, you know, very rewarding in each one of those categories. You know, you don't necessarily have to be trying just to grow vegetables to make a living. You know, it's actually when you get more dynamic with your with your value adding of what you do that it works really well and, and you're and you're well paid for it as well. Mm-hmm. So all this is yeah. a bit in my learning as, as I do here. Yeah. And then uh, and then um, our second child, Jaya, Jaya Soul uh, Judd uh, was born three years ago and is joy so you know we've got this really beautiful life going on um not saying it's easy (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. not easy uh i I don't i don't know anybody's life who's easy man maybe uh (laughs) mr um mr rogers mr rogers i don't think mr rogers life was easy he just figured out you know some ways to deal with this i don't want to paint you know this too idyllic picture but we do very grateful to have this beautiful home, uh, the family, we've got about three acres of mixed food forests, uh, 25 acres of woods and a stream. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're in the Blue Ridge Mountains, um, which is beautiful Appalachia country. That's where I'm sitting right now. And what's interesting about this is that, you know, behind us, we're, at the, we're sort of at the, uh, the foothills, of the Blue Ridge. So behind us is the Appalachia you know, Blue Ridge, Appalachian Mountains in front of us is sprawling suburbia. You know, we're 45 minutes from Washington, D.C., and we're 45 minutes from Baltimore. And so our what used to be a town is now becoming a city. Um, So it's like, you know, it's the edge. It's the the edge, uh, which is very interactive, very intense. And so I'm trying to play, uh, you know, what a role, whatever role I can in this edge. Um, and so that's evolved into sort of things like the festival, but then, uh, four years ago, I really had a vision. Um, it literally was vision, um, of, of seeing these endless fields of corn and soy and pasture out here being filled with, you know, nut trees, especially sort of, you know, the hybrid Chinese chestnut, like literally I could just see them. Mm-hmm. Um, in this vision, you know, I might've had half, might've had half a bottle of whiskey, but either way, that vision was very powerful and very real. And, you know, like, you know, I, I, I had this understanding that this is now what I was going to, you know, move my life toward. And I kind of stood up and said, Hey, you know, the theme of the day was, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to plant, a, you know, a million of this or a million of that. I said, I'm going to help plant a million nut trees in the mid-atlantic region and and it's kind of you know hokey yeah. as that is actually been really it's been a really powerful thing to do because that yeah, people like that you know media likes that people pay attention yeah. they're like oh really okay hey there you got a big goal you want to do something but it, it, and i was like but i stood up and i said it and i was like and then i was just then i, then I was going to see who came forward 
um, to, you know, begin interacting with. And I still am yeah. in that place. And I'm like, you know, I'm interested in all aspects and all levels of people approaching and working, you know, with me around getting nut trees planted on all different scales. Yeah. But one of the people who stepped forward was someone I'd been working with, a client that I'd been working with on doing agroforestry plantings on, on her farm. And she said, you know, let's start a nonprofit. I will help, you know, with the administrative part and, you know, all the stuff, you know, I'll, you know, I will be your, your partner in this. So I said, great. So we started Silvo Culture uh, mm. in 2019. Mm. And that's sort of the hub for, you know, our work to help plant. Uh, a million nut trees in the mid-Atlantic region. Yeah. And we're growing, we're growing. Um, you know, we've been, we've been very grassroots, uh, but we've, we've, we've started a lot of education and a lot of connection with resources. If you go to silvoculture.org, you will see some of the resources that we've compiled. Yeah. Uh, we do have a very strong focus on the chestnut, the Chinese chestnut. Yeah. Uh, because it is so productive. It's an annual bearer of a carbohydrate rich, storable, um, you know, food source that is just hugely productive um, that can, you know, feed humans, feed, you know, the, you know, the macro fauna of the landscape, uh, domestic animals. I mean, it, it just, I mean, we can get into that. We can get into, you know, particulars on different types of nuts, but the chestnut really stands out and our project has largely, you know, focused on that at the same time, you know, agroforestry systems in general, so that we have diversity mixed mm -hmm. in. And we've been yep. looking at, you know, the bitter, bitter nut hickory for the oils and, you know, working with Rutgers for the hazelnuts. And so, you know, yep. we, we're, we're, we're looking at diversified systems, but, really getting a, a strong focus on chestnuts because it's also proving to be economically viable. And we, our understanding is that for this to really take off, it has to make money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's just a small group, you know, it's the choir, you know, mm -hmm. we want this to go mainstream. We, I want those fields, those fields to really change and to do that. Like everything else, it seems these days, it has to make money, you know, money drives our landscapes, you know, it, it what we're eating drives our landscape. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to be realistic. Have, have you found, I saw that one of the, thank you for that background on it. Um, I noticed one of your projects is called Morris Orchard. And mm. it looks like that one is a vestigial chestnut orchard that you're recuperating. And it looked like there were some hickories in the mix. And I wondered, were those hickories selected or hybrid varieties or were they, were they wild? Anything you want to tell us about that, that project? Yeah. Yes. So I don't know about you, Andrew, but in, you know, the, when you really put your heart into something and you get involved, you know, it's kind of magical things do happen. Um, and, and, and very complex things happen very quickly. And I'm not saying this happens to me a lot, but it's happened enough times in my life to realize that it does happen. Um, and I think that's when you're really sort of following, um, you know, your heart and you're, and you're looking to be of service. Yeah. Life really convenes <laughs> to make things happen. And, and this Morse orchard is a great example of that. So it is literally probably half a mile from our home. Um, and I don't know, some years ago, even though I grew up, you know, driving all those roads, 
um, I don't know, maybe like four years ago, I was driving and all of a sudden I did a double take and I realized I was looking at, you know, a nut orchard as I was driving by. The first part next to the road was is, is uh, sort of mostly black walnuts and northern pecans, uh, about 20 year old orchard, you know, on 20 foot spacing, ready to be thinned. Um, but beyond that was 10 acres of 60 year old Chinese chestnuts, a 60 year old Chinese chestnut orchard, man. Wow. Half a mile from my yeah. house, right? Right. And I was like, pulled into that driveway and went up and knocked on the door. And like this 95 year old woman comes to the door. And I'm like, I'm like all excited. I'm like, man, I can't believe you got this orchard. And she was so sweet, so welcoming. Um, and she was married to a retired USDA, you know, ag uh, guy. And actually they had bought the property, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago from the guy who had planted those Chinese chestnuts. So obviously they had an interest in that as well. So they bought the property and then they did an additional eight acres or so of the black walnuts and the, um, and the northern pecans. But there's a whole line also of grafted um, northern pecans and hecons, and mm. there are some grafted uh, uh, shag and shell barks on the property. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. So, yes, there's some grafted trees, but a lot of seedlings mostly. So anyway, so anyway, so so I'm going there. I'm going there all the time, you know, over the last, you know, many years uh, and starting silviculture and, you know, using it as a site to learn from. It, it hadn't been the, the, the orchard that hadn't been interacted with. It, um, I'd say about um, six or seven acres had been mowed under. So mm -hmm. it was, it's beautiful. And, you know, all the trees, but they're on at maximum 50 foot spacing and they're and they're all touching and shading themselves out. And, you know, no one's been harvesting the nuts. So it's, 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 it's not been managed at all. Um, so it's kind of starting to be a little bit biannual and it's bearing. There's a lot of weevils there, um, but it's just dumping nuts. And the wildlife from all over convenes there. The bears, the, the deer, you know, all these critters come there. Right. It's fascinating. Right, right. It is such a hub. <laughs> Yes, it's a hub of yeah. life. Um, and it's majestic and beautiful as well. So about three or four acres has kind of regrown into forest. The, the, the Chinese chestnuts are still in there, uh, yeah. but they've kind of regrown. And anyway, so I kept going there over the years to work on it and to harvest. And I kept saying, because you know, I kept saying to her, I was like, hey, you know, if you guys, you know, no, no, 90s. I'm like, if you guys ever move or sell this place, please let me know. You know, I'm, you know I, I tried to talk to her son. I kept trying to, you know, put that out there. and. I think it was about, uh, uh, maybe it was two years ago now that in January, her husband died and, you know, she, she moved out West and they had an auction for everything in the house. And this was, you know, many months later, maybe like, you know, like May and my brother who lives in New York city sends my mom this email and says, Hey, look at this beautiful property, which he never does, you know, there in Frederick. And my mom knew I was for a place to create a natural cemetery, a green cemetery. 
and I had so I had I didn't know that the that Mr. Morris had died. I didn't know that they died. I didn't know the the place was you know going for sale. I didn't know any of that. I hadn't been there because it had been the winter time, right? Mm-hmm. So my brother sends my mom this, this this email and says this place is for sale. My mom's like, hey, you know, she's trying to email it to me. And I'm not looking at it. So she finally, my mom walks over because we live on the same piece of land. She walks over. She knocks on my door. She's like, I want you to look at this land. So I look at it, and, and as soon as I saw the price tag, I was like, this isn't going to work. You know, this isn't going to fit what we're trying to find for a natural cemetery. And then and I was like, well, let me look at it again. And oh my God, it was the Morris, it was the Morris property for sale. I was like, oh, and so I jumped in my car and I drove down there and sure enough, it was for sale. And so I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, so I call up a couple of friends that I know with money and I'm talking to my mom and I'm like, and like, and, and so I called the realtor for the place and they're like, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's just like, there's like 10 people that have bid on it and, and, and it's going, you know, to decision this afternoon. If you want to bid, you have to have it in by two o'clock. And I'm like, oh man, so I'm like calling around. And, and, and I scraped together, you know, you know, the people that would say they would do it, put the bid in and we won. Wow. How you like that? <laughs> wow. So, so now we are stewards of so it's 36 acres, um, you know, and it's, it's so, so now we, now we are the stewards of this and we, we've gotten one grant uh, to do to start working on the orchard and pruning it and rejuvenating it and, and kind of experimenting too. And how hard can we cut them back? Um, What happens when we wood chip this guy and not that guy. And, you know, so like we've got a couple small grants going, but, uh, and we've been, we've been picking nuts from it. We've been doing volunteers. We, we created a hot water dunk, you know, trying to work with the weevils. We're trying to figure out what to do with the nuts um, you know, what quality, what quality they are, what genetics do we have there to work with? You know, mm-hmm. we're starting to monitor them, uh, record them. Um, so there's some good genetics in there. I mean, all of it's good. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever met a chestnut I didn't like. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. we are start, we're starting to see within that, within that genetic pool, you know, what might we want to continue to propagate from. Um, so again, exciting times, early stages. And yes, I am still trying to create a natural cemetery on that property. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. we, we, we might, we, we, we might be able to, that, that might manifest this year. Yeah. Oh, along those lines. So the, on, on this property, there's about five acres of open field left. And as the design for the natural cemetery would be to, you know, as we plant people, we plant nut trees uh, and we would sort of, you know, reforest that, um, you know, as people are buried. So that becomes a long-term uh, nut-rich orchard as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great story. I'm glad I asked about that property. Fascinating. Because it, it looked like yeah. one. As I looked at your projects, I was like, what's the story behind this one? They all, they all are fascinating. You know, it's to me clearly just the beginning of conversations that I look forward to continuing to have with you about how we can collaborate because really the Permaculture Living Lands Trust is what I want to just wrap up and share a little of that project with you. Um, you know, we're, we're a nascent 501c3, like literally four months ago. So, and I'm starting it with a, a dear friend and colleague who's kind of a, 
high-powered grant writer and land trust specialist. So like he ran a land trust in South Carolina called the PD Land Trust. He's raised over, oh, I want to say um, 7 million to acquire properties for natural living, you know, the Natural Lands Trust in Pennsylvania. And David's been working most recently with um, Agrarian Trust. And Agrarian's been doing a lot to find land for um, BIPOC community, for people who aren't as easily able to get access to land. So we're kind of combining forces as far as his skills in conservation and in land trust work with my skills in permaculture and launching this permaculture living lands trust. Really, a lot of it has to do with you know, qu quick kind of origin story to give you a sense of the overlap that's that's really interesting between Silvo culture and the work you're doing. We started becoming aware about this Hershey planting, John Hershey. Um, you right. know, Zach Elfers, I saw him in one of your photos. Sure. You're doing the hickory nut oil pressing, right? So Zach, Zach is yeah. also working with us on the land trust to Basically, one of the first things we've realized as we were touching on, you know, nurseries and repositories are going to be an important part of the formula. So we're right now in the process, for instance, of creating a map, locating all the properties that Zach says are important, all the properties that Buzz Fervor, who's a good friend of mine, and you probably, you know, of Buzz's work, I would imagine, um, partially just because of how avid he is in the nut tree world right now so yes yeah with perfect circle farm up in vermont so those are so dale hendricks then in pennsylvania is a good friend of david harper and he's the one who found the hershey plantings and kind of then brought in other people and said hey i just found this vestigial nursery of a guy who was a friend of j russell smith's and lived in a quaker meeting house and interesting synergy there is it's the same Quaker meeting house that I went to for all my high school years as a Quaker and then realized planted all around it were grafted burr oak, persimmon, grafted oh, wow. right? None of which I knew when I was there as a <laughs> Quaker meeting. And then I find out through Dale, he's like, and, and, all those and there's all those persimmons across the street too. Yep. Persimmons and um, chestnuts and uh, grafted hickories. And, and then he's got another property in Guthriesville, right? So the Guthriesville is where Hershey had his actual historic home, right? So, so we started realizing, well, there must be more properties like this that are actually more acquirable, if that's a word. You know, and because what I mean by that is the Hershey site, that's, it's a headache to wrap your mind around how you would actually purchase and protect that land. There's so many different owners. It's so sliced up already. But Parker Coble, who just right. passed not that long ago, he's got some properties out in Gettysburg and places like that. And then we also learned about this guy, Ted, who's in New Jersey. And he also is older and has no um, children. So the land trust is a vehicle by which we can basically use easements to protect the nut tree groves in perpetuity, which is an important piece of the formula by our 
analysis of this whole glut, if you could call it such, of enthusiasm around agroforestry and nut tree plantings. A big part of the formula that's missing is protection of the land where they're planted. Because if we think that simply capital value due to asset, you know, um, substantive generation of the landscape towards the market economy of agriculture is going to cause the land to stay nut trees is whimsical. The market's whimsical. Banking on the market to be what creates landscapes of posterity is questionable. And what we're looking at is the robustness of the structure of easements and land trusts to really kick it into the next scale that we're wanting to see as a permaculture community, right? When we're as like intrepid entrepreneurs finding that edge and creating these thoughtful landscapes of service, we're trying to cover our backs when it comes to legal status of those landscapes. And what, what we're looking yes. at, right? Because what we're looking at is why are these vestigial plantings suddenly held hostage to the whimsies of the market? Right. You had to scramble to get down there to find buyers to buy that, you know, to buy that middle orchard property. But what if right. that property had been valued a whole lot differently because it already had an easement on it that said the acreage that had the trees could never be developed? And when you do that, when you put easements on it, seeing there's other smart kind of investor people out there who've done this, where they, in effect, devalue real estate with conservation easements. And then a group of investors buys it below market value, opens it up for long-term leases for people to plant various, you know, organic farms on them. There's there's one up here that's advocating that called Northeast Farm Access, the Iroquois Fund. Some of these groups that have been working in slow money investment for a while have been using easements as a tactical way to basically devalue real estate and change the market value of it. And it can be used for multiple applications, but the usefulness of an easement on future tree crop plantings that we would like to see, say, collectively as a future inheritance for future generations, what we're looking at is the need to have that land be protected, simply put, right? And the fact is, that's part of why it makes sense to do what I've noticed some of your projects are, and what I'm also, I've done a couple forest garden plantings on public land. So what I'm doing is I'm partnering with the city of Kingston and planting a polyculture forest garden. But what we did was we partnered with, in New York State, the DEC has its own tree giveaway program, and they call Trees for Tribs up here. So what we did was we front-loaded trees for tribs with a list that we hand-selected that tilted it towards a lot of persimmons, a lot of hazelnuts, a lot of later successional hardwoods like oaks, right? Then we interplanted it with hybrid hickories, with trees we got from Buzz, with John Hershey varieties that he's been propagating. So now we've got a polyculture of a wild ecosystem with the trees donated by a state conservation nursery with bought stock that's interplanted to create a future forest landscape that's on public land, right? So that was that's one approach. 
is you can plant these first on public land. Like I see you're doing some parks, right? And clearly that stacks multiple yeah. functions for us as designers who want to find that energy where we're doing something that's strategic in a place where people are going to see what's planted. Then you can get into the demonstration education. You could have placards. You could tell school groups about it, right? So that's yeah. yeah. And you know what? Sorry, there seems to be a lag here on the on the voice. No problem. That's the check of Zoom. I, <laughs> I also I also see these as you know inoculations, you know, genetic repositories. You know, it's like when you're getting the really good genetics of the hickories, the black walnuts, the persimmons, and you're sort of introducing or reintroducing them to a region, a neighborhood, you know, wherever. Yeah. that then they're going to disseminate from there the squirrels you know the people everything's going to you know so that's like an inoculation point for then spreading out to that region so i see these as very valuable to to try and spread around little hubs that over time will then just spread out and that's that's a little bit of the invisible uh you know a visible wave uh that will come over time and then as we learn to value these genetics from these trees will also be able to come and access them. So again, that genetic repository work, I think is some of the most important, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the story I'd, I'd read somewhere that, you know, I think especially during the middle ages, like in Europe, where, you know, everything was just like, everything, everything was just, was just survival. You know, the monks had, you know, kept a lot of the art and, you know, literature, but they also kept a lot of the, you know, genetics for the plants and stuff. So when the Renaissance came and then people stopped, you know, killing each other so much, they all came back out and they'd sort of held, you know, the, these, these, these seeds. And I kind of feel like we're in that now. Like It looks like we're going in, you know, a bit of a fire and brimstone period yeah. uh, of whatever. And it's like, okay, well then, you know, right now people aren't really paying attention to the importance of these genetics, but some of us are, and we can really gather those and we can hold these spaces, yeah. document them, protect them. Yeah. And then, you know, when the, when the sun comes back out and people are like, okay, we're ready to start new, boom, you've got, you've got the seeds to do it with. So uh, I, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'm also working in the same vein, and I've also realized and that creating a, a, a natural burial ground is the ultimate uh, conservation right. because that's the least likely place anyone's gonna you know dig up and build something on. Sure. Yeah, and to me, it creates, sure. and that's why we're gonna get the nuts on you know get the nut trees going on these natural burial grounds. You know, because as you probably know, unfortunately, a lot of easements and things can be overturned, paid off, et cetera, et cetera. But start burying people there and they're going to have a hard time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's actually quite a robust fund, but that's for another conversation that backs up easements so that anybody who contests it, there's actually a whole national organization that brings in lawyers and stands behind all the small mom and pop land trusts if anybody contests an easement. So easements short of eminent domain, easements are actually quite well financially supported because if any small land trust saw it overturned, it would set a precedent all over the country. So there's a national land trust who has an endowment that backs it up for, you know, 
quite quite substantial multi-million dollar fund for legal defense of easements. Yeah. Yeah, but I look, I, I know I have to let you go, man. This is so much fun. Two things I want to say as we wrap up. I want to come visit you and invite myself to come hang out sometime with you there. I'd love yes. to help I'd love to help do something with a reclamation if you're putting together, you know, a work crew for a day at that middle orchard. That would be a great excuse for me to come down, chill with you, bring my electric chainsaw. And and I of course want to extend the, you know, the inverse here and say, please come hang with us in Ellenville. I just think the two of us getting together and talking in person more, there's some exciting synergy happening with the work you're doing and the work we're doing. And it's it's such a pleasure to connect with you. And so, and I so appreciate the wealth of people that you've hipped me to that I'm going to totally reach out to Jerome and thinking about, you know, these ways that we can just move out the work we've all been passionately engaged in with our lives here for, you know, some time. So really such a pleasure, Michael. Yes. Yeah. Likewise, Andrew, thank you for your journey and thank you for, yeah, for sharing it with all. And, you know, you, I see, I see you in service um, and it's beautiful. And of course I would love to, to, to see what we can do together. So, you know, always have a place for you, uh, plenty of room to come and stay. We will be, we will be working on that orchard probably uh, in very early March, if that works out. Um, yeah. we're gonna, I know we're actually doing a workshop uh, for, you know, around the, the orchard pruning um, and a few other things. So I could send you that if that works out. Uh, but anytime you want to come, come. There's all there's always stuff going on. There's always things to help out on too, and just just hanging out and talking, like you say. Um, and I know you know us as growers, those those windows vary. Um, you're a little colder there, so maybe maybe come sooner than later. Um, yep. And yeah, love to have you. And I'd love to keep you know talking. I mean, I know I ranted a lot about my history, but you know if you want to you know do another recording where. Where, where we geek out on, you know, on really growing nuts or, you know, what, what are the realities of creating nurseries? Because um, that is really the bottleneck uh, for sure. And we can get into all of that, you know, sort of plant plant side of stuff. Because I mean, really that's what I am, a big plant, you know, you I, know nerd. So, you know, yeah. it'd be a whole, whole nother, whole nother foci. Totally. Yeah, let's do a follow up to this. And I want to schedule a meeting when you have time with just you and I and David. To just talk, talk shop with, you know, no on the wall listening, just getting into it. <laughs> yeah. Good. yeah. All right, bro. Be well. Much love to you. Much love to you. And so folks can find you at Ecologia. Can you tell me one more time as we wrap up your, your websites or places for people to find you? Yeah. Ecologia Design. Uh, I, is is a great landing page for a lot of the different things um that i that i do uh instagram i'm uh, at permaculture ninja um of course if, if you if you go to ecologia design you'll see links for you know my youtube videos and all you know it's a good landing page links to silvo culture uh are on there so lots of ways it seems these days to connect Great. And for folks listening, I'll include those in the notes to the podcast too, so they can easily find you. Yeah. 
All right, everybody. Much love. Uh, enjoy. Uh, keep planting. To the trees. Thank you for listening to this episode of Permaculture Perspectives. That concludes my conversation with Michael Judd. Look to the notes of this broadcast for live links to more of Michael's work. And listen to our next installment coming up to the Permaculture Living Lands Trust listening series. PLLT number two will be with Dale Hendricks. Dale and I had a great conversation with lots of rich examples of young, inspired people coming into the field that you're not going to want to miss. Keep us tuned. Permaculture Perspectives, informing your world.